Hello, Macrodose listeners. My name is Ben. I'm one of the producers of the show. We're away on our holiday break this week, so we're leaving you with a special episode of Macrodose. We've put together three of our favourite stories from 2023 for you to enjoy with the last of your Christmas leftovers. First, from planetary boundaries to donut economics, are there quantifiable limits to our exploitation of nature? Second, greedflation. We're now hearing the term a lot more in the media, but what is it and what are the mainstream missing? And finally, James answers a listener question. Where do you stand on universal basic income versus universal basic services? For a first story today, I wanted to draw on a new report published in the scientific journal Nature about the state of the planet and the concept of planetary boundaries. The idea of planetary boundaries is from another influential work by Jonas Rockström, which was first published in 2009, and he and his team are working on this new paper. This was the first big attempt to set down some basic tools for understanding the safe operating limits of the Earth's main biophysical systems. In other words, trying to quantify how much humans could take out of the world's various natural systems that we depend upon, like a stable climate, the world's water systems, its biodiversity, and so on. And from this, establish the boundaries at which exploitation would become unsustainable. Beyond that boundary for each system, each system is at risk of breakdown and collapse. People might be more familiar with the concept of donut economics, as developed and popularised by the economist Kate Roweth in her 2017 book of the same name. Donut economics took the idea of limits across the major Earth systems and added the idea that there was also a, quote, socially just minimum consumption level out of each of these systems, above which it would be possible to guarantee a decent life for everyone. You may well have seen this illustrated. To show this, you end up with a donut, a big circle with a hole in the middle. The limits of the big circle show graphically the actual physical limits of the world's different systems, whilst the boundary of the inner circle represents the minimum consumption of each needed to secure a decent life for everyone. Tracing this line of thought back even further, this idea of social justice is strongly influenced by the philosopher John Rawls and his 1971 book, A Theory of Justice. Rawls argued that if none of us knew where and to whom we would be born, or what our particular qualities or talents would be, we would end up wanting a society that guaranteed a certain minimum standard for everyone. I simplify a little bit there. Now, as an aside, there's a useful recent attempt to apply Rawls's thinking to contemporary economic problems by David Chandler called Free and Equal. Or else you can check out Katharina Forrester's book, In the Shadow of Justice, which is an intellectual history of Rawls's influence. Anyway, the donut in donut economics tries to embed this idea. It doesn't say everyone will be equal, but it tries to offer a minimum standard of living that would be acceptable to everyone. What the new work published in Nature does is to take this idea and apply some new numbers to it. It asks if we want to avoid both dangerous tipping points in the Earth's systems, and we want to ensure everyone has a reasonable existence, what are the levels of use and consumption from the main Earth systems that are sustainable? And, more pressingly, what levels of consumption are we actually using today? It's safe to say that the results are not good. Of the eight planetary boundaries beyond which we start risking catastrophic effects, we've managed to cross seven, including climate, the biosphere, water and nutrient cycles and aerosols. And since the damage from crossing those boundaries is already falling on the poorest and most vulnerable populations, those boundaries are in reality even tighter. If we care about social justice and securing a decent minimum life for everyone, then the famous 1.5 degrees limit to global warming by the end of the century, which was set at the 2015 Paris Agreement, is not even close to being good enough. We have to aim for, instead, only one degree of warming. 
This is because, as the Nature Report's authors claim, the distribution of damages from 1.5 degrees warming may well be easily absorbed by richer countries, but is already pretty devastating in the poorer world. So if we actually care about making the world fairer, we need to do better. Now, this has pretty major implications all round. The first is a reiteration of the message that we are already rapidly moving into the danger zone for the planet. We all know this. It's obvious every day that things are kind of falling apart. There was a report in the Financial Times on Monday about how the fight over access to water in drought-stricken Spain is becoming an election issue there. The Conservative regional government in Andalusia is turning a blind eye to illegal well digging by farmers, even though this risks major damage to wetlands across the region. Meanwhile, there are calls to boycott Spanish strawberries in Germany, precisely because any arriving by this point are likely to be making use of illegal wells. Every single day, ecological breakdown is fueling supply chain crises and resource conflicts like this, and they are hitting the news. But the second implication from the research is more novel. It is that we are not necessarily going to plunge into some apocalypse-style end times, the don't-look-up scenario where a, a terrible calamity is going to befall us in the future and bring about an existential crisis, essentially meaning the end of the world, isn't likely to be how this stuff plays out. What the idea of not just safe boundaries, but also just boundaries tells us, is that in the absence of such an apocalypse, the world is likely to slide into steadily more inequality as the Anthropocene progresses. This nature report outlines that whilst decarbonisation and other attempts to restrain damage may continue, and that the rich world may be able to insulate itself from some of the impacts of climate and nature crises, the impacts across the whole world are likely to be dramatically unjust, leaving billions exposed to the brunt of the chaos. It's there in black and white for anyone willing to see it. Setting limits isn't good enough. We can aim for 1.5 degrees warming, although we are actually falling rather short of even that. But targets will not build institutions that can distribute the impacts of climate and nature crises fairly. We need to do more than figuring out what we can get away with. A report by Oxfam, also out this week, made clear that the current figure of $11.5 billion pledged in assistance by the rich world to the poorer to cope with the effects of climate change is hugely short of what is required. Worse, much of the support is in the form of loans rather than grants, meaning poorer countries being tied into heavier debts into the future, just as the costs of climate and nature crises are starting to rise rapidly. In the first instance, the case for reparations, or, or something very much like them, if that word frightens people, is becoming more apparent. In the second, financing isn't going to be good enough. We need to think more closely about how resilient systems, from housing to farming, can be built in a world undergoing rapid changes. It's all well and good talking about planetary boundaries, but it's high time to realise that in reality, those days are long behind us. If we're going to adapt to a warming world and do so with any semblance of social justice, our future shouldn't be working out what not to do, but what we need to do. And most urgently, recognising that those in the global south are already facing the harshest edges of deepening climate breakdown. A quick update on greedflation, which is fast becoming a common soundbite in discussions of the economy across our media. Greedflation, as regular listeners of this podcast will already know, is the idea that a major part of the inflation we're now seeing is being caused by firms jamming up prices to make higher profits, hence the greed. There's an intuitive sense to this. If prices have gone up, but wages and salaries haven't, then profits for some firms, at least, must have risen as a result. Related to this, the Office of National Statistics yesterday released figures showing that wages once again fell in real terms over the last year. Wage and salary rises are not keeping up with inflation, and the stats show a fall around 3% in real terms. So that's now the 17th consecutive month of falling real wages and salaries in this country. 
At the same time, we know that at least some companies have made astronomical profits. The most obvious culprits are the multinational fossil fuel corporations, who have generated obscene amounts of money for themselves on the back of sharply increased prices over the last 18 months, even before the Ukraine invasion. As we've touched on before, something similar seems to have happened with food too. As prices have shot up, with food inflation in Britain now at 19%, the highest for nearly five decades, many food companies have made hugely increased profits. The four largest agribusinesses on the planet, who between them control a great chunk of the world's food production, have seen their profits rise 255% since the pandemic began. Meanwhile, the UK's three largest supermarkets almost doubled their profits over the same period. There are two difficulties with this story of greedflation, however. The first is the most obvious. If some companies today can drive up prices and make huge profits, why were they not doing this before? This is where it's important to think not just about the greed in the greedflation of the giant corporates making huge profits, but also about the wider economic context. Again, you've heard me say it before, but not only COVID, but the Ukraine invasion and climate change all have an impact on how our economy functions. Olive oil prices, for example, are at a 26-year high because production in Spain has been cut by 50% as a result of the droughts there. Crises are providing the opportunity for some large companies to make obscene profits. The second difficulty with the concept of greedflation is more subtle and has been raised by Ben Broadbent, who is the Deputy Governor of the Bank of England. Broadbent has argued that profits in the UK overall have not actually risen that much since the outbreak of this wave of inflation in the last 18 months or so. Now, as a general rule, he's kind of right, but it's missing the point. The reality is that only a relatively few companies operating in markets for essentials have been able to exploit these crises to jam up their own prices. Major energy companies, for instance, were perfectly placed to exploit the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Food companies have been doing something similar, both food and energy companies are selling something that is quite hard to avoid consuming. You can cut your gas consumption a bit, but you can't go long without food. The result is that when a crisis hits, both companies are able to sell their products at much higher prices. They have, between them, a degree of market power. The same doesn't apply to all those smaller businesses selling things that are less essential but still important, like restaurants or pubs or, or smaller local shops. They all face rising costs, pushed onto them by food and energy companies in particular. But these smaller businesses have less scope to try and drive up prices. The result for them is falling profits. Their customers have to cut their spending on non-essentials because prices of essentials have gone up, and their own costs as a business have risen. This is the reason pubs are closing at a record rate in Britain right now. All of this is probably fairly familiar to listeners of this podcast. But I think it's also becoming something like the accepted story for a larger number of people, including economists and big economics institutions like the European Central Bank, which has reported in the last few weeks on soaring profits inside the European Union. What the mainstream is still tending to ignore, however, is that these current crises are not going away. As I've said before, and as I'll keep on repeating, climate change isn't suddenly going to stop. The crisis of nature, of biodiversity loss and resource use is not going to end. These are factors that are and will continue to push up prices. If harvests fail because of extreme weather like heat or frost, the price of crops being grown will tend to rise. And since our climate change models all say climate change is going to worsen, there will be more pressure on prices, especially of essential goods like food. You have to put both sides of this together, the crisis and the corporations, to get the complete picture of greedflation. 
A small number of large companies are currently able to exploit the crises we face to generate extreme profits, whilst the rest are forced to suffer the results of those same crises, plus the corporate profiteering on the essentials. It's a crisis of nature, plus the problem of capitalist structure that is generating inflation today. And that means whilst inflation is likely to ease off over the next few months, as the Ukraine war washes out of the price figures and as the short-run food supply issues ease, it is highly unlikely to get back to its pre-COVID levels of 2% a year. The solutions here should be obvious. We must stamp out profiteering, control at least some prices and put up wages. The next step is making essential systems like those supplying energy and food far more resilient. Typically in the developed world, this is going to involve relocalizing production significantly, bringing it back to, well, if you live in Britain, bringing it back to Britain. So you have more farming taking place here. You have more production of energy taking place here and shifting to renewables in the case of energy production. The British government may just about be waking up to some of these issues. You might have seen that Rishi Sunak hosted a farm-to-fork conference this week at Downing Street, bringing together farmers, supermarkets and food manufacturers to promote the government's new approach to food security. This included pledges to keep quality controls on food imports in order, Sunak has claimed, to protect farmers and consumers, which is a particularly striking decision when contrasted to his predecessor, Liz Truss, and her completely free trade approach to the issue. But the government is resolutely refusing to take action on supermarket profits or to intervene directly on prices and is committing to preserve the traditional hyper-concentrated structure of the British food system. So there's not much prospect here of the more radical reforms needed actually materialising. So it's good that people are starting to talk about greedflation. We need to build a popular consensus around the idea and work towards a more general understanding that today's price rises are translating into higher profits for some of the largest corporations. With sales of private jets expected to hit their highest ever level this year, it's not hard to say your cost of living crisis is their profit bonanza. But when we talk about greedflation, it's also important to remember the context in which this is happening. That's the context of a broken and outdated economic model and an economic mainstream turning a blind eye to the realities of the crises we're set to face in the future. This question was sent to us by Patreon supporter Harry, who says, Hi James. Thanks so much for all the great work. I was really pleased when Macrodice was announced. It has definitely filled a space that was lacking in the podcast world. It's a weekly staple. I just had a question in relation to Autonomy's announcement for their planned universal basic income trial. This is really exciting and seems great, but I was just wondering if you could shed some light on this idea in relation to universal basic services or the social guarantee, as some argue that this is a more comprehensive solution. So thanks for that, Harry, and it's a great question, and one that has been the subject of much debate since the Autonomy Think Tank, which does some really good work, announced its intention to trial a locally-led basic income pilot in central Jarrow and the Grange area of East Finchley earlier this month. So under the pilot, 15 people in Jarrow and 15 people in Grange, East Finchley, will receive a basic income of £1,600 a month for two years. Researchers will work with the people getting these payments to understand the difference they make to their lives. And then this research and people's stories were used to make the case for a national basic income and more comprehensive trials to fully understand the potential of basic income in the UK. This pilot would also ensure evaluation materials work and produce valuable primary data that can be used for further research in the short term. Now, the announcement kicked up a stir on social media and beyond and restarted an age-old debate about the relative costs and benefits of providing a national, universal basic income against spending to make other public services free at the point of use, which has become known as universal basic services. 
Now, the starting point of my response here is that this discussion of UBI, universal basic income, versus UBS, universal basic services, is a bit of a false opposition. We should, obviously, be aiming for a world where we can provide both UBI and UBS. But there are more complex questions here of strategies and priorities. So let's start with the objections to UBI, many of which are outlined by Navara Media co-founder Aaron Bastani in The New Statesman last week. The primary issue he flags is around expense and value for money. Aaron writes that a UBI scheme in Britain would cost around £170 billion a year. Citing figures from the think tank slash pressure group Compass, Aaron says such a scheme would reduce child poverty only from 16% to 10% and have little to no impact on pensioner poverty. For slightly more than the cost of the NHS, which costs £160 billion a year, Aaron thinks we could do more with the money to be spent on UBI. There's a couple of problems with this. The first is that the Compass study being used is from 2016, and the figures Aaron picks up on are the minimum change scheme, which is intended to run alongside the existing benefit system. Compass have since updated their figures with a 2022 report, which provides three different UBI options. Each of these is intended to set a high minimum income floor for the population. In other words, making sure every person would have at least this minimum income guaranteed. On the updated figures, the minimum UBI scheme, paying £63 a week to adults and £190 to pensioners, can be implemented at zero additional cost because as you introduce UBI, you can remove all the benefits that it replaces. Compass also recommends some income tax changes, reducing the personal allowance and raising the highest income tax rates, for example. So using a model of the UK population, the distributional effects of this are dramatic. The poorest 10% see their incomes rise on average by 140%, and everyone up to the top 20% sees an improvement in their household incomes. Unlike Aaron's 2016 figures, child poverty under this scheme would fall from 27% to 12%, and pensioner poverty from 17% to 8%. In other words, this will be a very major shift in the balance of income in Britain, with hugely dramatic impacts on some of the poorest people who live here. The point here is that this isn't doing UBI as an add-on to a deeply flawed benefit system. It's that UBI presents the opportunity to completely redesign the system. This could include raising taxes to be significantly more redistributive, and, as we touched on in last week's show, embedding the idea that everyone must be entitled to a certain minimum standard of living. We're limiting our vision if we're not thinking beyond the existing structures and forms of welfare. And it has to be said, constrained horizons have been a weakness of the left, not only in Britain, but across the developed world over the last decade. Since 2008, so much of what we've been doing has been defined by opposition to the fallout from the crash. It's anti-austerity, it's protect the NHS, it's this defensive posture. And so instead of presenting a vision, a real alternative beyond that to the existing systems of capitalism, you get something that is always lined up to say, we must defend what we've already got. And maybe somewhere down the line, you think about some of the inadequacies in this. You saw this in Corbynism. The manifestos, particularly in 2017, were typically framed as ending austerity and restoring the kind of pre-neoliberal, pre-Thatcher, pre-Blair provision of public services and public utilities. This brings me to the concept of universal basic services. I'm not a massive fan of this as a framing. I think it's giving an unnecessarily technical sort of wonkish gloss to a bunch of things that are really plain old post-war social democracy, free healthcare, free education, free communications. It has some resonance on the left, I suspect because it sounds like you're offering something really radically new and different when you're basically offering the same programme the left has presented for decades, just extending it a bit further. 
Aaron actually argues this in his essay, that, quote, UBS builds on something everyone is already familiar with, the post-war provision of public services. Now, there is a powerful, positive case you can make for protecting the good things that we have and trying to win arguments for new provision by reference to the old. The Marxist philosopher Jerry Cohen, in some of his last writings before he died back in 2009, presented the case for a left-wing conservatism, that wanting to preserve the value in what is good is a solid aim for progressives, and we shouldn't leave these sorts of arguments to the actual political conservatives. But there's a deeper problem at work here, which is that the reality of the world we live in is increasingly incompatible with the demand to keep things as they are, or return to normal. We are increasingly being challenged by radically new circumstances, from a largely unanticipated new coronavirus to the development of particular kinds of machine learning to the unexpected side effects of climate change on supply chains. To try and preserve what we value in all this actually demands being far more radical and demanding. We must, as I said last week, begin to think about the institutions of the future and what they could look like. The environmental movement is, as you might expect, a, a source of this kind of political innovation. So the demand for access to the countryside and for rewilding, for example, starts to pose a challenge to existing property rights and long-standing laws in the name of preserving and defending ecology. UBS could and should be part of this form of defence, but it needs reframing. And here I can circle back to the original question, and the need to do both UBI and UBS together. If we step back from the immediate details and the implementation of either scheme, you can think of both of these demands as being part of a wider process of decommodification. In other words, removing things from the market and instead rewiring the economy for people and planet instead of profit. What's crucial about UBI is that it involves the decommodification of the most important commodity that exists under capitalism, which is labour. UBI breaks the relationship between income and paid work, so it decommodifies the one completely non-renewable resource that we have, which is our own time. Now, I've been personally very influenced by the work of the political ecologist Andre Gortz in thinking about this, about how work is the central institution of capitalism. And once you start to seriously question this, you start to crack open the whole system. All this is to say that UBI pilots, like the one autonomy is planning, are important. They're important because they strike at the heart of how capitalism operates. And that's why they're the subject of so much controversy. It's a test to see how people will act once some part of their own time is entirely their own. Results from earlier pilots in Finland, for example, have tended to be very promising. That given a bit of space and security to themselves, people will tend to be creative and often productive with that time. Reported well-being from participants in the Finnish trial was improved and levels of depression, anxiety and so on dropped off. There was the additional benefit that participants had a little more freedom to choose the kinds of work they could do. They now had the capacity to turn down low-paying work. What you can start to see here is a microcosm of a different kind of society. One in which we start to hand free time back to people. Time away from work to use as they please. For their own creativity or care work or, or really just sitting around with their friends. I'm not that interested in making a value judgement about this. As Karl Marx's son-in-law, Paul Lafargue, once wrote, in a truly free society, we should all have the right to be lazy. Anyway, thank you so much for your support, Harry, and I hope that goes some way to answering your question. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.